0: Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and lead the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built oh, Pith Pithum. <laughs> Sorry, and Ramesses as store store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were... (laughs) Sipphra and Po yeah. Uh, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, observe them on the on the delivery stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people, Every boy that is born, you
1: must throw them into the Nile and let every girl live. So following on from our previous reading, our final reading is Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water.
2: There are literally billions of people who use social networking sites every single day. Sites such as Facebook, Twitter... Pinterest, back in the day when I was a kid, there was MySpace, and loads, loads more. There are literally hundreds of different sites, all with the aim of connecting people. They're useful to a certain extent, to another extent they're just a pain, but some of the stuff that people put out there is really, really interesting. Some of it, not so much. Some of the stuff people put out there is actually really rather questionable, But these websites are so popular because of what they allow people to do. They allow people to express who they are. You can choose how much or how little of yourself you share with others. And you can choose how you present yourself to the world. So why do so many people spend so much of their time doing something like that? Well, Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, said... Think about what people are doing on Facebook today. They're keeping up with their friends and family, but they're also building an image and identity for themselves, which, in a sense, is their brand. They're connecting with the audience that they want to connect to. It's almost at a disadvantage if you're not on it now. Building an image and an identity for themselves. So true. You can be whoever you want to be, behind the safety of a computer screen. And it's not just young people who are into it, there's people from all generations. But there's a pressure to fit a particular mould. And like I said, that happens to people of all ages. Identity and how we create our own brands is so important to literally millions of people around the world. But What's that got to do with the story of Moses? Well, the issue of identity, of who we are, is not a new thing. The need to fit in or choose not to. The issue of who we are has always been around, just explored and displayed in different ways. The book of Exodus is all about identity. It can be read as Israel's response to the question, who are you? And it's an explanation to the question, who do you belong to? The passage begins with an identity crisis for Israel. They were the descendants of Jacob. As you will know, they migrated to Egypt to escape famine at the end of Genesis. And at the start of this passage in Exodus, we read, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power. You see, it had been about 400 years since Joseph had invited his brothers and their families to come and live with them in Egypt, where... Because of Joseph's status, the Hebrews were treated like honoured guests. They'd got certain privileges, but a lot had gone on during that time. And the author of Exodus takes a few verses to remind us. A new king was now on the throne, one who didn't know Joseph, which meant he had no commitment to his loyalty or loyalty towards Joseph's family. And it meant that he had no genuine concern for their welfare either. Because this new king didn't know who Joseph was or what he'd done, then the Israelites were no longer known as Pharaoh's chosen people. Instead, they became enslaved to him. And this was a massive change in identity for the people of God. They went from being the king's favoured people to being the king's slaves. That's a huge turnaround that's got to be hard for anybody to deal with. And along with new challenges came a new identity, one where they were no longer free to do as they pleased, but were totally controlled by the Egyptians. And this crisis that led them to this change set the stage for the understanding of identities, not only for people like Moses at the centre of this passage, but for the whole of the people of Israel too you see the hebrews had grown in number and we're told that the land was filled with them the new king noticed that they were numerous and that the egyptians um, they were more numerous than the egyptians and they were more powerful too and let's remember that the people of egypt hadn't had it easy it hadn't been peaceful for a number of years they'd had foreign invaders for a while in the east of the empire, which caused Egypt to take a more warlike stance than normal. And in such a stressful situation, the presence of an ever-growing Hebrew population as well was simply one more threat that Pharaoh didn't need to think about. That's why the Hebrews became slaves in the land of Egypt, because the king saw, the new king of Egypt saw that it was the only way to keep them in their place. Better to have them in chains than joining up with enemies. And we're told that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So the king came up with a fantastic plan. He would um, put them under pressure. In order to restrict them and limit their power, he forced them to work hard. He forced them into manual labor. And despite their attempts to limit them, the Hebrews still grew in number and spread. We're told that the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour, with brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them mercilessly. So the king approached the women who had been appointed as midwives to those thousands of Hebrew women and said, start killing the boys, of all the Hebrews, whenever you get the chance. Apparently, it never occurred to this king that aside from being one of the worst kinds of plans imaginable, that it didn't really make much business sense either. Because he enjoyed progressing things, he enjoyed building things, and who was going to do all that building if he killed all of his male slaves? You see, the king was clearly having insecurities about his identity. He clearly felt the need to express his power and display it with force. Pharaoh was motivated by fear and by pride and by power all at the same time. But then we come to the issue of the midwives. They decided they weren't going to do what the new king had asked them to do. They were risking their lives not doing that, really, because they decided that they were going to tell the uh, king that the Hebrew women just simply gave birth too quickly, and when they got there, that it was too late to help them. And they'd done it on their own because they were a lot more sturdy than the Egyptians. And the king believed them. We're told that the midwives feared God. And that's why he blessed them with families of their own. But you see, they served God, not the king. Doing what they knew was right and what they knew was right in the sight of God is what they chose to do. And thankfully, the king didn't realise that they weren't telling him the truth so he didn't punish them. And the obvious challenge from all, of, from all of that to us is the question, how much of what we know is right do we compromise to please people and go along with things rather than standing up with it and sticking to our convictions and not compromising what we do? How much are we willing to stand up against things that are unfair and unjust and just simply wrong? However much of a risky situation that might put us in. That's exactly what the midwives did. They stood their ground and refused to do what the king asked. They were only concerned with what, the, uh, what God wanted of them. But because the midwives were not good, the king had to think, well, not no good, We're no good to the king for his purposes, he had to think of another way of getting rid of all the um, Hebrew baby boys. So he commanded that his own people take every Hebrew baby boy down to the Nile There was no escape if everybody had to do this. If They had to drown them in the Nile, which was a little bit harsh. And surely this way he could prevent the Israelites from becoming even stronger and becoming more of a threat. But when Moses was born, he was put into the Nile in his little basket boat, and the Pharaoh's daughter found him. And when she did, she took him into her care. You see, the mother of Moses made a choice. She made an offering in the hope of survival of her son, by planning something that went against the ideas of the king. She built a small vessel and put her child into the water, offering him to God's care. This was done out of love for her son. And Moses went on to transform the lives of an entire people, establishing a heritage that was becoming free from slavery. None of this would have happened if she'd have not taken those steps. You see, this mother was clever, She conveniently placed her older daughter just a little way away so that she could keep an eye on her younger brother and check that he was safe. And I wonder what did this woman think was going to happen to her son? I wonder if she was thinking that God would help her in all of this or not. I wonder if she ever imagined what the future held for her son or whether she was just trusting God to keep him safe in the face of an impossible situation. A guy called James Brown from a Baptist church in LA tells of a time when he was in an impossible situation. He says this. There's no situation that I can get into that God cannot get me out of. Some years ago when I was learning to fly, my instructor told me to put the plane into a steep extended dive. I was totally unprepared for what was about to happen because after a brief time, the engine stalled and the plane began to plunge out of control. It soon became evident that the instructor was not going to help me. So after a few seconds, which seemed like an eternity, my mind began to function again, and I quickly corrected the situation. Immediately, I turned to the instructor and began to vent my fearful frustrations on him. He very calmly said to me, "'There's no position you can get this plane into "'that I cannot get you out of. "'If you want to learn to fly, go up there and do it again.'" And at that moment, God seemed to be saying to me, remember this, as you serve me, there is no situation that you get yourself into that I cannot get you out of. If you trust me, you will be all right. You see, God not only got this mother and her son Moses out of a horrendous situation, but he used Moses for such an amazing amount of good years down the line. A desperate situation turned about by God for good. So Moses was in a basket in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter came along. And whether he was put there knowing that the king's daughter was going to pass by or not, we don't really know. But whatever the case, she discovered the basket. The king's daughter knew this was a Hebrew child. She knew what was meant to happen to the baby boys. She probably knew what she should have done, what the law said, what her father said, which was take the child into the Nile and to drown him. But she chose not to do that. I imagine that really she knew that that was wrong and thought that the law was unfair and unjust. You see, we knew, we, from what we read in the passage, we're told that she felt sorry for him. So she took the baby and she lifted him out of the water and figured out how she could look after him. She then got Moses' sister to go and find someone to who's going to um, look after the baby for her. Of course, she went to her own mother, who the king's daughter then paid essentially to nurse her own baby. So in the end, Pharaoh ended up protecting, raising, and educating the very Hebrew boy child who was going to make him sorry that he'd even ever heard of the Hebrews, and without a clue that he was doing it. Not only was she saving the life of Moses, she was saving the life of his family as well. Because if we remember the Israelites were slaves, They were never paid for their work. But Pharaoh's daughter went against her father by paying this woman her wages, honouring her and perhaps giving her a bit of a dignity back. We're not given any further details of Moses' childhood at this stage at least anyway, but we can fairly assume that it was full of the trappings of a royal Egyptian royal life. He was probably taught the Israelite traditions by his mother as well, But other than that, he was an Egyptian royal. So I guess you could say that Moses had a bit of a confused identity, at least in the first instance. As a Hebrew, he would have identified with the negative labels that his people were given. And as an Egyptian, a royal at that, he'd have been given other labels and expectations. And as we see later throughout the book of Exodus, which we're going to look at over the coming weeks, Moses was still confined by his thoughts. The fact he argues time and time again with God for chapter upon chapter of Exodus is proof of that. You see, Moses was a slave to his thoughts. He believed someone else's truth about himself, that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't strong enough, that he wasn't able enough. You see, that's the legacy of being, what a legacy of being looked down upon from generation to generation can do to people. Rather than see his life as a series of miraculous events, such as not being eaten by crocodiles in the Nile, not being drowned when the other baby boys were, not getting uh, killed as a baby, and being able to escape from Pharaoh and have a new chance of life later on down the line, which were all miraculous events, instead, he saw things a little bit negatively. Instead, he didn't see that God had been right there with him, working out things despite his situation. And you know, for us, I wonder, how often do we allow other people's labels and expectations to affect us? How often do we listen to what other people say about us rather than what God says about us? The passages we looked at from Romans that, for the past couple of weeks were all about how we don't conform to the patterns of this world, but how we live distinct lives as Christians in a world where that's not what's popular. And for young people in particular, it can be really hard sometimes. Focusing on God and nothing else is a difficult thing to do, especially when doing what God wants goes against what the world tells us. But let's take a step back and really think about the situation from an overview. All the baby boys are being killed. You've just had a baby boy who you love dearly and you know that a law has been passed where he has to be killed too. That's horrific. That's an impossible situation if ever I heard one. I think it's easy to miss how horrendous that story is and how impossible that situation actually was because in the passage it's just a couple of lines and something that we've probably just accepted over the years. But it is actually a really big deal. So who knew that God would use the loving actions of his mother and the everyday actions of the Pharaoh's daughter bathing in the Nile to bring about such a huge change? God took an unbearable situation and made it good. It wouldn't be impossible to guess what would happen next, but what happened, happened. You see, sometimes we need to realise that we can't see the bigger picture, but God can So what we need to do is focus on God, who knows the bigger picture and every detail of it. It was through the little actions that all all built up that brought about the rescue of Moses from the Nile. His mother had simply to trust that she was doing the right thing, however much she won't have known the outcome. A TV show that was on just before um, Winter Olympics, and you see these things all the time, feature blind skiers being trained for slalom skiing impossible as that sounds. Paired with sighted skiers, the blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make the left and the right turns. And when that was mastered, they were taken on the slalom slope, where their sighted partners would ski beside them and tell them left, right, and whatever they had to do. And as they obeyed the commands, they were able to negotiate the course and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skiers' word, It was either complete trust or a catastrophe. What a vivid picture of Christian life is that. In this world where in reality we're blind about what course to take, we must rely solely on the word of God who is the one who is truly sighted. His word gives us the direction that we need to finish the course. This passage, which shows us the courage of the midwives... And how Moses was saved and how he was raised are all parts of the bigger picture of the relationship between God and his people. You see, God sees things perfectly, even when we can't. The Israelites learned who God is. They discovered that through the way he eventually led them out of Egypt, that their identity is grounded in belonging to God and knowing his people. They knew they were God's people. They knew they had to focus on him. And trust him with their futures. Time and time again, God referred to the Israelites as his people. No one would have known what the future held for them. They were in an impossible situation, and overnight they had had their identity changed from being favoured by the king to being his slaves. But God heard their cries and rescued them in due course. He brought them out of Egypt with this baby boy who had grown up as their leader. They simply had to continue to be devoted to following him wherever he guided them and have the courage to go and do whatever he asked of them. So the challenge as we begin to look at the life of Moses, a man used by God, who knew he belonged to God, is simply the question, are our identities so grounded in belonging to God and being known as his people? Do we trust God in the impossible situations that we face? knowing that he knows every detail of the bigger picture? And finally, are we able to have the courage to follow God to new places and do the new things that he asks of us? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that whatever situations we're in, we know we can trust you. If our futures are uncertain, we know that we can put them in your hands and that you know the bigger picture. Lord, we thank you that you guide us and that you care for us and that you care for the little details in our lives. Amen.